Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too. I, it's a surprise, confused goodly morning from me. James, we, we won. We beat Everton 4-0. Uh, oh no. Fuck off, Tim Stillman. We are now the Arsenal Women podcast. That's what we're doing. <laughs> we have a 4-0 win to chat about. It's amazing. We score goals. We play some nice football. We've pivoted to, to, to women. Stillman saw this coming, didn't he? <laughs> he knew what he was doing. He was no fool. He, mo- yeah. he moved over into that territory. He saw the way the wind was blowing. Absolutely. Smart he's man. He's a smart man. <laughs> oh, look. Sure, here we are. What can we do? We'll have to, uh, we'll have to you know, do the other thing, I suppose. I don't really remember this game, by the way, because it seems so long ago. I'm so accustomed that, to us playing on a Sunday night. Yeah, it feels... I, that's true, and I was only thinking about that. And uh, It occurred to me that, you know, had the game taken place last night, it might be a different kind of podcast, if you like. And I don't mean, yeah. like, that we're going to ignore issues, but, I like, how did you feel on Saturday evening after the game because I know like I'm not sort of saying I was going crazy or anything like that but I was so frustrated and so just cheesed off with the way that we played and some of the individual performances and the fact that we didn't win again you know I feel like um if I'd done a podcast in the immediate aftermath of that Mm. there would have been some (laughs) <laughs> I'm not saying they're words I might regret, but they certainly mm. would have been fueled by by anger. It would have been just sort of 90% horse noise for me, I think. <laughs> I think, you know, having had kind of uh, tier four imposed like mm. an hour before kickoff and, and Christmas whipped away from everybody in London, uh, the football was not the icing on that particular shit cake that I needed. Um, so, yeah, it wouldn't have been a great, podcast wouldn't have been particularly insightful i don't think i think it maybe might it would have been, been great it could have been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it would have been very cathartic yeah but um i how am i feeling today uh oh, the same the same as i felt the last few games i mean you know arsenal i have this theory are basically pretty consistent in what they produce at the present time and actually i kind of feel there isn't a massive degree of variety but between what we're producing in the ga- these games that we're losing and the games in which we won earlier this season I feel like generally the the quality of the performances isn't dramatically different and mm. that's why 
when these games come down to fine margins, you know, we can end up losing them. It's really, yeah, Mikel Arteta is talking a lot about this, and maybe it's because he's a manager who's losing a lot of games, so some might see mm. it as excuse-making or, or whatever it is. I, I do kind of think he is trying to find the positives um, from the situation, yeah. as few and far between as they are. And he was at his press conference today, which I watched a bit earlier on, I don't know if you saw it, but he was talking about... Uh, this kind of statistical model that they're using that, you know, um, Burnley had basically uh, a 3% chance of winning the game mm. against us based on whatever metrics that they're they're using for this. Mm. Burnley had the 3% chance and they ended up winning. And against Everton, we had something like a 62% chance for, for, you know, whoever puts this model together reckons that based on the passages of play, etc., etc., you know, 62% of the time, the team that does what Arsenal did win and we didn't. I don't know if that's clutching at straws or whatever it might be, but he is keen to stress that the margins are are quite tight. Whenever a manager comes into a press conference with something sort of pre-prepared, it worries me a bit. <laughs> um, you know, it makes me think of sort of Rafa Benitez and facts and things like mm. that. And, and I, when I hear those numbers, I think a couple of things. First of all, it would seem to me they, I, I don't know for sure, but it feels like they're based on uh, the expected goals because, you know, Arsenal mm. theoretically beat Arsenal and Everton on expected goals in this game. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether he's he's uh, counting, you know, penalties in that because that really distorts those numbers. I also don't know whether or not he's considering the state of the games. I mean, if the fact that you're behind in a game skews those numbers in your favour dramatically yeah. and, and Arsenal keep going behind, I think Arsenal haven't led a Premier League match for what is it, like nine or ten games or something absurd? Is it? Um, oh, yeah, I think Orbino had a stat about that. Maybe I should try and get it right. Actually, I, rather. I love what or- Orbino does. I love his stats. But, but you I, had to mute the account. I, I haven't <laughs> muted. It's just like every week is, there's a new stat which makes me go, makes my heart hurt. It really does. It's like, oh, God, how can, how can this be? Oh no, another one. Oh no. Every time I see him post something, I've got like, oh. And that's yeah. obviously no reflection on, on him, but it's just, it's, it's a bit relentless at the moment. It is. Arsenal haven't been ahead in a Premier League match since the start of November. So that would be the Man United game. So, yeah. So I think when um, Arsenal and Arteta are looking at these numbers, I hope that that's something that they're factoring in because inevitably when teams go ahead against us at the moment, they are prepared to sit in deep and defend because they have no fear of what we might do to them. It's, mm. you know, so I, I think that is skewing things. The other thing I hear when I hear a manager say that is he says, he's effectively saying, well, 60%, the stats say that 60% of the time we should have won this game or 90% of the time. And yet we lost. I don't look upon that as any achievement, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's uh, like I said, I think it's his way of trying to look for positives in what has been a, a truly uh, negative run. Mm. Yes. Uh, you know, um, and that was something he's, he said, like, uh, as well, is that he doesn't read what people are saying, um, and he tries to keep a positive mindset throughout, you know, it's not that he's not paying attention to, to stories that are out there, but you know, trying to maintain some kind of positive outlook is is the way that he uh, works and is trying to work his way through this. Um, well, well, were there 
Any positives from the Everton game? How did you feel about that side of it? Was there anything that you took away that you thought, we are doing something better? I've started with the hardest question there. You really have. I suppose you would say that the fact we finished the game with flourish is the wrong word, but that we finished the game applying pressure to Everton, mm. I suppose could be seen as a positive in the context of the lackluster displays we've we've seen of late. But, you know, when your only shot on target in the second half comes in the 92nd minute or whatever it was, you know, it's it's difficult. That feels like a bit of a reach. You know, mm. for me, there were... There were more negatives, obviously, than than positives. Um, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, we lost the game. We didn't play well in the first half. There were some individuals who I'm sure we'll come on to who didn't really play well or play in a way that you would want experienced players to play in games like this. Martinelli returning is a positive, right? That's good. He's back on the yeah. pitch and, you know... This isn't to say that he's going to be our savior or anything like it, but to have another option in that front three is certainly very welcome. So that's my positive. What about you? Well, even that positive for me is shrouded in a slight concern that he may have been a little bit rushed back. I mean, I don't know. He only played the one under 21 game. Yeah, but do you think they would have, you know, after, after being without him for six weeks mm. or six months or whatever it is, you know, would we really... I know there's pressure on Arteta. I, I understand that pressure to get results means that you can sometimes compromise your decision-making, but it just strikes me that it would be so, so stupid to bring him back before he's deemed ready. I mean, he... I think he said in his press conference he feels he's ready to, to come and play, and he's been back in full training for a few weeks. He got a, a cameo here. I mean, it's, you know... I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I don't share your confidence simply because um, things are desperate enough that they rushed rushed Thomas Partey back. Mm. I know that was with a lot less training behind him. And also the injury to Aubameyang feels like the determining factor for me. Uh, listen, mm. fingers crossed, it's all fine. I'm sure they're being uh, doing all the right things, but uh, it surprised me, I'll, I'll say that much. Okay. Fair enough. I still see it as, as, you know, potentially a positive if he can be eased back into action. I'm not saying start him every game or anything like that, but, you know, mm, to, to yeah. have a, to have a player of his quality, certainly what we saw in the, in the first half of, of last season, you know, it's good because some of the players in that front three just aren't doing it. So, so where do, where do we start? Um, to examine this one, do we go to team selection? Yeah, I think so, because there were some interesting aspects to that. I mean, I was uh, a little bit surprised by the team selection. I thought that some of the players who hadn't played in midweek would come back in. Hector Bellerin being mm-hmm. one, he was suspended. Um, but he didn't start. Ainsley Maitland-Niles did. I, th- you know, I didn't have a particular issue with that, but I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um and no Aubameyang, some, obviously. No Aubameyang was obviously the big news. Um, I'm trying to think. And then in the front three, I was a little bit surprised that Lacazette didn't come back in. I thought he might actually, having sat out the midweek, but he, he stuck mm. with Eddie and Ketcher. So uh, it seemed to me like 
Arteta, to an extent, uh, was had seen things in the pre- previous game, which was Southampton, wasn't it, mm. that he chose to stick with at Everton in terms of Enketia and Maitland-Niles, which, you know, uh, it, w- it was a... Uh, a slight surprise to me because in a, th- a, a week with three games, I thought some of the changes might be purely down to rotation or the suspensions. Right. Um, okay. I mean, he didn't have much choice in midfield, did he? Um, with El Nani and Ceballos? No. Granit Xhaka's still out. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much his lot. At the right. Moment. Uh, he picked Willian, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. I... I uh, I don't know quite where to start with this because I, I really have not been as infuriated by a first half from from an Arsenal player uh, on an individual basis in in a long time. Like I can deal mm. with players being crap, you know. We've had plenty of those down the years, but if there's the requisite effort uh, and a player is doing his best, then you know you can't ask much more. They're not picking themselves. So if they get picked and they're crap, that's kind of on the coach. Uh, A player who is playing badly and isn't trying is, in this current circumstances, uh, really irritating to me. Really irritating. And I saw a player in that first half who just was going through the motions, who looked like he was coasting. There was a bit about six or seven minutes in, and he got turned over on the right-hand side. We know he started on the left. He got turned over on the right-hand side. Guy ran away from him. I can't remember who it was. But the way he jogged across the pitch to get back over to the left-hand side, Mm. I swear to God, I wanted to put my foot through the fucking television. It's rare that I shout at the television. I did quite a bit of shouting at the television on Saturday night, not just at Willian. Um, at aspects of our play, but that that was the first one. That was the mm. first one, and it made me so cross to see him just amble around the pitch like it, it was a a part game or something like that, a kind of charity game in which you know he's playing against some fat old guys. He just sort of sauntered around like he did not give a fuck. Moments where he was caught on his heels. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Rob Holding looking for a pass, looking for somebody to play the ball to. And he played it across to Willian, who stood there. And it was intercepted as the ball got to him, whereas if he'd come looking for the ball, you know, he could have taken it. And, and you know, whether he would have done anything with the possession is another question. But, like, at least show you're interested. What mm-hmm. did you make of that first half? I thought he was really lucky to stay on. Really lucky to stay on. Because if, you know, if I had been the manager... Maybe I would be making an overly emotional decision because, you know, I'm I'm in that sort of red zone of of hating everything about this deal right now. Um, but I thought he was lucky to to stay on the pitch. I mean, Sky at halftime showed uh, his sort of lack of attempt to close down the, oh, the cross, cross for the, for the goal. goal. <laughs> sort of hanging a leg out and not really getting there. And I think that is really infuriating. I don't think it spoke to me as much. And honestly, it's because I was thinking about it from a different perspective. I was... Um, Who are you really... hating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was actually really bemused by what by the use of Willian, even if we were playing him. I thought it was really weird. Um, 
Arsenal changed the shape of their left-hand side where uh, they asked the left winger in the first half at least to basically stick on the touchline. I assume they did. Maybe Willian just wasn't running and was just staying there. And uh, I just thought it was strange. The the idea was so that Saka from left wing-back would be the guy Mm. with no Aubameyang going inside. Saka would be the guy to kind of drive in field. But it just made Willian... I think even if... He had been making effort an absolute passenger in the game in a similar way, similar way to Pepe on the right hand side at times last season was just sort of completely stuck out there on his own. Mm. I, um, yeah, my eyes weren't drawn to it in quite the same way, and I know that makes me in a very small minority because people are really uh, furious about it. My, my feeling on Willian is. Like I've said in the past that I think it's difficult if you come from a rival and everyone's sort of not that warmly disposed to you straight away. But I look at his best mate, David Luiz, right? David Luiz came to Arsenal Mm -hmm. under a cloud. So, you know, he came from Chelsea. He came with a very, very, very mixed reputation. He came with an association with a certain agent. Uh, Mm. There were a lot of reasons that Arsenal fans should hate David Luiz, basically. And yet I would say, in fairness to the Arsenal fans, I'm not sure that's the case. And I think Arsenal fans have given him every opportunity. And when he has performed, that has been recognised. And, you know, his his good games mm-hmm. um, have been celebrated. And I think people have ended up with a very rounded, realistic perception of who David Luiz is. And that, to me, says that you can come from a rival and you can win that kind of support and win, you know, that kind of respect if you do your job sufficiently well. And Willian, at the moment, just isn't getting anywhere close to that, is he? No. Yeah. You know, they're not all Sylvester's, do you know what I mean? Like, sometimes you take a player from a rival and they show enough that you go... Do you know what? Fair play. And I'm not saying anyone thinks David Luiz is Tony Adams, but I think people recognise he's done his job at times. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, and how how much do we separate the the collective malaise, which is something that everyone, uh, I think, is enduring, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on the playing staff. I mean, there are a few uh, players... Um, doing anything much more than um, than we expect, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But is he a poster boy for this now? Is he emblematic of the problems that we have? Is it because he's a, an ex-Chelsea player? Or is it because, you know, at the end of the day, we're not stupid either. We can see when... We can see when the... The cocktail is not right for the club. You know what I mean? It's a great yeah, deal yeah. for Willian. It's a very nice deal for Willian. You know, to come in and get paid all that money and, you know, you get picked week after week and you don't have to perform and there don't appear to be any consequences for your underperformance. But, you know, at least look like you're trying. And he didn't do that in the first half. And I've seen people talk about the second half. And to me, the fact that he was competent, and not much more than that, I think he was competent. He did what you would expect him to do. 
uh, or any experienced player to do. He did that in the second half. But for me, that's not worthy of praise based on w- what happened in, in the first half. It just makes that worse. Mm, mm. I think that's... Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they changed his role in the second half and it helped him. But look, he, he is the poster boy and he's not doing enough to change that. Um, you know, he's not producing ultimately. And I think the question becomes, well, actually I'll come on to that. But what I was going to say is, Mm. you know, sometimes a signing might appeal for kind of technical sporting reasons, but there are other factors to consider. There are kind of cultural issues to consider. There's the issue of, you know, the player's motivation to consider. Um, And you wonder if enough thought went into that, that aspect of this deal and I think um, yeah my question becomes what is Mikel Arteta seeing that we're not it's a very good question one that I can't answer I mean you could say perhaps you know for the Everton game there were you know a lack of options maybe but he could have played Hector Bellerin at right back he could have played Ainsley Maitland-Niles where Bukayo Saka played and then played Saka as part of that front three. Mm. I I know that he's um, a coach who's predisposed to a certain level of experience on the pitch as well. Um, You know, he feels like the team needs that that balance. But, you know, I just don't see what this guy is giving us. I don't see... I just don't see it at all. I don't... There's no justification for his selection week in, week out. Um, and it yeah. raises questions, you know, about why is he apparently or seemingly immune to uh, any consequences for anything he does, whether it's play badly, fuck off to Dubai in the middle of a pandemic and not suffer any consequences of that, whatever they did behind the scenes or internally or whatever discipline he faced, it didn't affect his playing time, you know? So yeah, yeah. I... I yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. It just it's it's a it's a really it's been a really bad deal. You know, I think w- when it happened, we tried to talk ourselves into the idea that look, it could be all right for a year. The three-year deal, mm-hmm. nobody could ever justify that. We didn't and didn't even try to justify that. But I think what we did do was say, well, look, he is experienced. He's done it at Premier Premier League level. He should be able to come in and contribute in a positive way, you know, for a year, maybe 18 months. And then you've got the 18-month fucking contract issue to try and sort out and, and what you do with him or maybe he moves on or whatever it might be. But, you know, I, I really did not expect it to be this bad no I, I, if I had to try and understand Michael Arteta's choice mm. I think that the reason the only reason he can be doing it is uh, the kind of technical security reason you know William completed I think 46 or 47 passes against Everton and we don't have other players who do that in the opponent's half now there is the counter, obvious counter to that which is are they adventurous passes? Are Mohamed, they dangerous passes? Mohamed El Neni completed ninety six percent of his passes against Everton. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and yeah. like El Neni was a player who I I had an issue with. He made me scream at the television a few times because, um, 
there were moments where he was standing there. Rob Holding, I think, had the ball at one point and, and Holding was looking for a pass. I mean, the amount of times our central defenders only had each other to pass to, Holding mm-hmm. and Louise. Um, I'm sure the pass combination uh, stats will back that up. But but Holding was there and Elneny was sort of standing in a position in midfield where Holding couldn't get the ball to him. Mm. That thing where they stand there and they go, give me the ball, but just fucking drop off a little. Come and pick it up off him. Don't stand in the way of of, of an opponent. So, mm. yeah, I know what you mean about the, the passing statistics, but they, you know, they don't tell you... Um, the full no, but story. I mean, if we're learning anything from Mikel Arteta's press conference this morning, it might be that he's a man who places too much faith in statistics. Oh, I my mean, God. Uh, uh, I, seen, I don't know. Have you seen the, the quote? This is the quote from this morning. Last year, we won against Everton with a 25% chance of winning. You win 3-2. Last weekend, it was a 67% chance of winning. Any Premier League game in history and a 9% chance of losing and you lose. 3% against Burnley and you lose. 7% against Spurs and you lose. What Mm. are these fucking magic stats? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. But as I say, if I had to try... If someone said to me, your task is explain why Teta's doing this, I'd say... Well, Pepe completes passes in the opponent's half at 72%, according to Opta, right? And Willian's at 87 And I think he's trying to offset the players who can't hold the ball. I mean, Eddie Nketiah uh, completed 16% of his passes against Everton, as far as I understand He had a it. really bad game, Eddie. He didn't, yeah. he did, didn't work for him at all. I mean, look, I, I, I can see that point of view, but maybe... You know, part that was in the, the opponent's half, yeah. sorry, by the way, the 16 Sorry. So, I mean, look, maybe the, 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 the reason why someone like Pepe, who, you know, again, I don't think is, uh, was particularly great. Nobody was. But maybe there's a reason why his passing statistics are lower, because he tries more adventurous passes. Of course, yeah. And, and Andreas Chavin, I always remember, who is the player who I find myself comparing Pepe to most frequently at the moment, used to have low numbers in that regard. Um I guess Arteta's just searching for balance. I'm literally just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah, pick yeah, William, yeah. No, no, I know, I know. I, I'm trying to figure out why this seemingly intelligent man is is doing that. Um, I don't think it's doing him any favours. And when I say that, I don't think it's doing William any favours at this point. I mean, we're sometimes when a player's really out of form, you do have to take them out of the firing line. Mm. And I think... You know, I know Aubameyang was missing and Reese Nelson has died, sadly died. Um, but, yeah, I really hope that we don't see... I, I think they, I hope they take him out. You know, I think I think everybody requires it. I think the team require it. I think he requires it. Yeah. Um, what about Eddie Nketiah? I mean, he had, in the first half, oh, a very presentable chance, I thought. He did. He did. I, I You know, I can only assume that he thought... There was somebody up his backside because he had a lot more time than, than he realised. He realized. Yeah. You know, if he'd taken a touch, the kind of finish that you would expect a, a, a penalty box striker to put away, you know, if he'd taken a touch and put it in the bottom corner, but took it first time. Yeah, I think his overall game um, wasn't great. I think he, he struggled. Um, you know, it's difficult when you're nominally the lone striker against gigantic Center halves um, like Yerry Mina, it, it is yeah. tough. But uh, I, I was yeah. surprised he lasted quite as long as he did. I was too, in a yeah. big way. 
Yeah. And I, and I have to say, I'm not at the point where, like, I'm finished with Eddie and Ketia. I think that as a kind of second or third choice for us, I think he might have potential. You know, I, mm. I think you look at look at the opposition in this game. Um, Calvert-Lewin, two years ago, was not pulling up any trees. Uh, Harry Kane, at Eddie and Ketia's age, was on loan at Norwich doing nothing. You know, I do mm. think sometimes with strikers... They get to 23, 24, they can improve. Obviously, what those guys have that Eddie doesn't is the size and the frame. And that is the concern for him in this league. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, but look, I don't think Eddie is or should be the focus of the the, the discussion here. But I was surprised that, that Lacazette didn't come on a bit Same. sooner. Same. I really was. I, I thought that was... What minute was it that he actually came on? I forget now, but it, it felt late whenever it was. It was after the 70th minute, I think. Uh, and the subs in general were uh, strange. I mean, we mentioned Willian not coming off. I mean, that felt uh, <laughs> kind of... I was kind of incredulous at that, I have to say. So Willock came on for El Elneny mm. on 64 minutes. I imagine that El Nenny's booking also factored into that, as well as Willock's, you know, yeah. capacity to score. Um, then it was Martinelli for Pepe seventy-one, and then Lacazette for Inquietia seventy-six. Yeah. That would have been a much earlier change for me. Might even have been the first change. I, I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with that. I, you know, for me, it would have been William would have been the first one off, but. Yeah, um, yeah, but there was a way you could reshuffle that. Yeah, quite easily. You know, you could. There's a lot of things you could do. What about the goals? Um, so yeah, first half uh, goals. What was the first goal? Oh, the own the goal. We talked goal. about not closing down the cross. Yeah. I mean, by the way, I, I really don't think Everton were very good on the day. Like, I thought they were really unimaginative. Yeah, I mean, they were playing with four central defenders at the back. Their wins over Leicester and Chelsea came when they had a lot less possession. So, you know, yeah. I think the idea of us maybe sitting off a little bit and letting them come out and play wasn't a bad one in itself because, you know, um, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I think the, the, the kind of game where they have a lot less possession against... Uh, a team like us suits them, you know. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, they've had a brilliant week, but I don't. I don't think they were brilliant either. They didn't have to do much to beat us, which is part. No, of the no, problem, no. And that's it? no sour grapes from me. No, no, I mean, no. I'm, I'm more saying, what does that say about us? Yeah. Um, first goal. I mean, the thing is, you know, Arsenal can sort of play that as wow, we were so unlucky. We scored an own goal. Well, Dominic Calvert-Lewin still got pretty much a free header there. And if he puts that in the bottom corner, do you know what I mean? At that point, mm. it's not unlucky. At the end of the day, you've let the cross get in. You've let him go across you. You've let him go on the end of the ball. Yes, it deflects in off Rob Holding, but everything prior to that, we're responsible for. Yeah, yeah. You know, it. it, it you can't bemoan the bad luck when you could have done a, a lot to prevent yeah, the, the it's problem. Yeah, it's not even like the Aubameyang one against Burnley. Do you know what I mean? No. Where it's like, it's a corner, okay. At the end of the day, you've let them build that up. You've let them do what they do, swinging across to Calvert-Lewin. I think you sort of pay the price for mm. whatever happens at that point. Second one. I, so what do you think about the second one, the corner? My feeling is that it stems from poor midfield play from Mohamed Elneny. I don't remember that. You have to enlighten me. Pickford clears the ball 
from his box into the centre circle, more or less. And mm. Calvert-Lewin turns Elneny like he was a child. Mm. Um, I think your, your central midfielder and your central midfield area, something we've spoken about countless times, has got to be better and stronger than that. And Calvert How many times have we seen that recently, oh. though? You know, we saw uh, Shay Adams doing it, didn't we? Yeah. In the build-up to the Walcott goal. We've seen Harry Kane doing it at yeah. Spurs. We, these centre-forwards, if your goalie launches it long into the centre circle, you can probably bring it down and play someone in against us. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a weakness in our game. And it was evident again. I think Calvert-Lewin took the ball on, he moved it on and ended up having a, having a shot, which Leno made a very good yeah. save from. But, uh, you know... In general, I think it was weak midfield play. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be stronger than that. You can't get turned as easily as as he got turned there. The corner itself, well, near post header, uh, flicked in by a gigantic man. I mean, it's not fucking rocket science, is it? No, but I'm not sure. I mean, listen, I, like everyone else, I was like, why is Pepe the guy following mm. Mina? But I, I, I am trying to have a broader view and say we haven't been conceding in those situations until recently. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not sure there's anyone we've got who follows Mina and beats him to that ball. I, I really am not. I mean, he's, he's sort of the best, I would say, at that. He is very, um, very good at it and has a long yeah. track record of, of scoring goals, I, I think. you know, And it is difficult. I accept that. I just think in terms of defensive organization, why are you putting a, you know, a fairly slight... Maybe, yeah. maybe they think Pepe is better in the air. Well, they than, have aimed stuff at him in the air before. Yeah, but I think, you know... We've loads goal kicks at him. Well, that's <laughs> it. That, that seemed to be the tactic in the Leeds game, didn't it? Was it the yeah. Leeds game? Yeah. Maybe. Until he got sent off. Uh, one of the games, anyway, I remember uh, Leno Leeds, just launching yeah. uh, high balls towards Pepe. So maybe he is a bit better in the air than we think. Um, but I'm not sure in a one-on-one situation like that... Well, there's only one winner there. There yeah. is. There is. Um, so I would consider maybe, you know, do we have anybody who could match... Yerry Mina, in terms of size, physical presence, I'm not sure we do anyway. I mean, Louise and Holding are, what, six foot, six foot one, something like that. But maybe one of your centre halves... there, it might be different. Yeah, you know? maybe one of your centre halves on the biggest guy would have been an option. But sure, um, that's 2-1 after we scored the penalty. Nicholas Pepe put away the penalty. Ainsley Maitland-Niles did well to, to get into the box and, and win it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Bad time to concede a goal, obviously, um, just before halftime. But it does give you the clarity of 45 minutes uh, of being able to do something about it. And we get to the 92nd minute, whenever it is, and that's our first shot on target. It's Yeah. And I, was it Jamie Carragher on commentary who sort of said, you know, they found something here in the last five minutes? I, it's difficult to get too excited about that, mm. isn't it? Um, yeah. They had a long time to chase the game. And I just think Everton looks pretty comfortable, to be honest. The only the only point at which I thought we might be all right here is when they took it was the ninety second minute and they took Calvert Lewin off. Yeah, and he was such a good out ball for them that I thought, uh, and you know, and so good defensively on set pieces that I thought we might have a chance of something now because they've sort of surrendered the initiative and and they're giving the, us the ball back every single time. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was the it was the classic Arsenal problem. Arsenal against say. 
a low block, a mass defence, and we didn't have an answer to it. Yeah, but again, you can't keep blaming that as the reason why we... No, I'm not saying you, by the way. I, I You know, we can't keep saying, well, they play in a low block, it's very, diff- very difficult to, to break them down. I mean, we kind of played with a low block when Everton had the ball. We sat off and we were playing with three centre-halves yeah. and wing-backs. They still scored twice. You know, the solution isn't to to keep talking about what the opposition do. We've got to find a way around uh, and cope with what the opposition are doing. We just don't shoot. We we are a team that doesn't shoot enough. I think there were some shots. Uh, quite a, a couple of them got blocked. I think, did Louise? It was Louise who hit the post with a kind of yes, bouncy, deflecty thing. I think. Yeah, a yeah, little yeah. bit unlucky. And again, you know, if you want to talk about fine margins... You know, maybe another day that goes in and you you come away from Goodison Park with a point. And I don't think if we had scored, you know, Everton could complain too much if we'd taken something from that game. I don't think we deserved to win it. And I'm not saying that we didn't deserve to lose because, you know, there's there's little point. But, you know. I, I actually think that we were... Um, better in this game than we have been in some of the games in this run. You know, again, like I said at the start, I don't think there's ever a great degree of change Mm. between the quality of our performances. But if you ask me to place them on a spectrum, this was one of the better ones. Um, And the margins felt particularly fine. But that's what's happening at the moment. And I don't, I, you know, nobody can explain that, why suddenly teams just find this capacity to lose games or win games you know these runs are phenomena and we are experiencing one mm. so what uh, now well great question because the other thing to say in slight mitigation is is this is a team that's without its spine you know we didn't have Gabrielle we didn't have Parto we didn't have Aubameyang Aubameyang and we're probably not going to have Parte or Aubameyang uh, for Chelsea. For Chelsea. Aubameyang's having a scan. Uh, Arteta did seem to say that he was feeling a bit better in the last couple of days. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's optimism that it won't be the two weeks that was initially mm. feared. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly don't know where we go from here. It's just so difficult. The team have to somehow dust themselves off and... Uh, go again because obviously we're at a point now where we're entering a critical period of the season Mm. the Christmas period is always quite defining quite decisive and we're four points off the relegation zone Um, like I don't see them making any change in the very short term regardless of what happens this week we've got Man City in the Carabao Cup tomorrow night and then we've got Chelsea on Saturday. Mm-hmm. I don't see a change being made this week. I do think that the next four games, Brighton away, West Brom away, Crystal Palace at home, and Newcastle at home, before we then face, in the Premier League, Southampton, Man United, Wolves and Aston Villa, I think those four games could be what defines or decides Mikel Arteta's future. 
Yeah. I, I would be inclined to agree with that. I think expectations for Chelsea, for example, are low, aren't they? Mm. And I kind of think, you know, we get what we get. If we can get anything there, that's a bonus, it feels like, at present. But I, those fixtures coming up do feel significant. I mean, they're mm. all six-pointers, Andrew. Relegation, <laughs> six-pointers. I know. I mean, it's ridiculous when you say it out loud, but that's... That's the reality. You know, Everton's win moved them up into second and we're looking over our shoulder at Brighton and Burnley and Fulham and, you know, with all due respect to clubs like that, that's not where Arsenal should be. There's no possible way of defending results. No. None at all. None whatsoever. And, you know, people might have different opinions on the fate of the manager and what should happen there but nobody like you say can defend this run it is it is an appalling run and you know we I think people tried to take what positives they could from the Southampton game Mm. but I was so expecting defeat at Goodison Park you know that just seemed almost inevitable to me Um, and it's a tough week now because Whatever people may think of the Carabao Cup, if we get battered by Man City, that's not going to help. Um, and if we lose to Chelsea, that's going to be painful because they're a rival. Mm. And what would yeah. you do? Imagine, for- imagine watching Willian against Chelsea. Imagine how annoyed you were against Everton. Imagine it was against Chelsea. That would be a new low. I mean, I'm imagining Willian. Back in a Chelsea shirt, where I think he should be. Maybe he could play a half for each team, like in a sort of testimonial. Yeah. So what do you do for the for the Carabao Cup game? Because, you know, I was sort of fantasising a little bit on, on the blog today about the kind of team I would pick. You know, I view um, the, the Carabao Cup as pretty much an irrelevance. And it sounds weird, doesn't it, to say that because it's a trophy and you could win a trophy and trophies are good and winning things are good. But the FA Cups have shown us as much as I love them, I would never change them. Uh, I loved every single day that we had out and, and, you know, winning the cup is amazing and I I wouldn't change it. Um, But they've shown that the measure of a team is not what it does in a cup competition, right? Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And I just feel like with this particular game against Man City, there's a chance just to say, fuck it. You know, when am I ever going to get a chance to play uh, kids in a sort of not quite a no-pressure environment, but in a, in a game in which if we lose, is anybody going to be that gutted, really? Unless it goes, like, fucking terribly. But, like, is anyone going to say, God damn, we're out of the EFL Cup. That is the last straw. I don't think so. So if you're searching for solutions and you're unsure about some some players or if you want to to maybe send a bit of a message, you know, play some of the young kids. Let's get Reese Nelson back in the team. Whatever's happened to him, I don't know. Something uh, my spider senses are tingling a little bit because he did have a bit of an injury, but then he hasn't been listed in the medical updates at all as somebody who is missing. So I'm wondering what's going on there. But, you know, Smith Rowe, um, uh, uh, Balagoon, you know, Look, Eddie has had chances, and I think Eddie has done better than some people give him credit for, even if I have some doubts, of, like you, over his um, his ability to be 
you know, the leading striker for Arsenal at this stage mm. in his career. I don't think that's right. But, you know, he's been given chances. You know, Everton away, arguably, is a much more important game for Arsenal than Man City in the Carabao Cup. And he gave Eddie a chance and it didn't really work out. And that's not to be critical of him. You know, that's the way it goes. So why not in a game like this, give Balogun a chance, give him some playing time, give him some minutes, help convince him that he will get chances at Arsenal. Maybe it'll help him sign a new deal. Maybe he doesn't become the great striking saviour that we all want him to be. But what you have is a good young player on a contract that you can then sell for money and reinvest it somewhere else. I mean, I, I, I can't look at this game in any other way. And I realize, I know I'm being completely fanciful because I think he'll pick up, you know, strongish team with Lacazette. Maybe you get Smith Rowe or something in there, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, because you can say, well, the cups don't really matter ultimately, but but I don't think Arteta will see it that way. No, I don't think he does. Because uh, look what winning the FA Cup did for him. Look what it did for his position with the club, his security, the promotion that he got as a consequence. Um I, I, I'm not sure he's wrong. You know, I think Arsenal are a club that place enormous importance on cups, probably too much. I think they allow it to sway how they feel about the direction of the club, probably a little bit too much. Um, but I think he'll look at that and think, well, you know, I'm obviously having a terrible league season, but if mm. I can win a cup, it might buy me time. It might, you know, mm. I don't know. So I think he will put out a... I'm going to say like a Europa League kind of team. Um, Do you want to try and predict the team? Because I think he's going to play Leno. I think he'll play Bellerin. I think he'll play Chambers. And Chambers. Louise and Pablo Marie. Uh, then he can play uh, Kalasnach, I guess. Oh, does he have to? <laughs> or he could play Maitland-Niles at left wing back. Yeah. Um, or he could play Saka because he plays Saka every game. Uh, then in midfield, probably he's going to pick Sabias and someone. Whether it's Willock, maybe could be Willock. Smith Rowe. Do you think Smith Rowe will get in the team? I think he will. Yeah, I think he'll play Lacazette up front. And then I don't know Willian, obviously. <laughs> William, obviously, maybe Pepe just because he's had the suspension and he's had a few less minutes than everyone else, so he might feel uh, that he can risk it. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will be a younger player. I just think it'll be that sort of mm. squad rotation, but not yeah. kids. Yeah. Anyway, and no place obviously for William Saliba. Um, I wouldn't have thought so. No. no. Which again, you know. I just, yeah. Might be nice to have him on the bench for a day out. Do you know what I mean? Like, get him out of the house. <laughs> that uh, just made me really sad. <laughs> Genuinely, that made me really sad. I feel really sorry for him. Really yeah, sorry. What a time. What a time to be, uh, you know, I know mm. he's not cooped up. I know he's at training, but to be excluded in this way must be horrendous. He cannot wait for the... January transfer window to roll around. I mm. Okay, we might talk about January transfer window a bit in part two. Um, so let's leave it there. Unless there's anything else that you want to talk about from the weekend. Oh, can we? Can I play this? 
this little bit, which was quite funny, um, from Sky Sports from the commentary when Martin Tyler is talking about David Luiz and William, mm. the signings of them. This is what happened. David Luiz and William brought in the latter stages of their careers, surprise transfers you would have felt at the time. I'll be careful with that one, Martin. Saw my phone up Sky Sports News about that. Mm. I mean, that was probably the most enjoyable moment of the game for me. I mean, just saying, you know, Kia phoned up Sky Sports and used to complain about him. Mm. Fuck's mm. sake. Yeah, well, there you go. It's no surprise to me, I have to tell you. <laughs> saying no more than that, right? <laughs> yeah. You never know, he might be listening. You never know. Arsenal fan, apparently. He should be listening. Right, let's leave it there. Let's. We'll come back with your questions more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArsBlog and on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an ArsBlog member on Patreon. Do you want to go first, James, or will I go first? Or will we flip uh, a coin? Or <laughs> what will we do here? I, um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go first, but it's a sort of uh, slightly jokey question, which was, um, oh, actually, I've lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lighthearted question and I've just lost it, which right. I think is fitting, really. Right. What a way to open the discussion. It sure is. Um, like, how, how have there. you lost it? Did you close, like, a tab, or what have you done? Oh, it's more complicated than that, Andrew. In the Discord, I end up screen-grabbing the questions. Right. I've lost the screen-grab. Where could it have gone? I uh, don't know. Maybe it, I didn't screen-grab it. Maybe you didn't. Must be that. Things don't just disappear There can't be any own. light-hearted questions, can they? It's not maybe, the day for it. Maybe towards the end. Maybe towards Okay, the end. all right. Maybe I'll find it in between. Yeah, them, okay, yeah. you keep looking. I'll ask you a question then. Uh, on, it comes then. from Tim Carpenter Balmer. 
Uh, he's got the kind of double-barrel name, which makes me think he could be one of the Arsenal youth, but never mind. He says, given where we are now, what constitutes a successful season? Nobody was predicting a top-four finish. So if he finished somewhere like 12th, but with a cup and having blooded, uh, bloodied, he said, a number of the youth team setting us up for next year, is that successful? Blooded rather than bloodied. Uh, we don't want our youth uh, prospects bloodied. Um, we need them in good shape. Well, it's a funny thing. He says, you know, 12th and winning a cup. We can sit here and you can say sort of, you know, soberly today, a cup, you know, doesn't mean anything and we've got to look at our league mm-hmm. form. But as a fan base and as a club, we are not, that is not how we react when we win a cup. I can tell you that for free. Um, we go, this is brilliant. We won a cup. It's the start of something. If we can build on this, now we've won this cup, we'll never lose a football match again. Ah, uh, you're over. You're you're overegging the pudding there, James. I think we. I don't we, think I am. I think we enjoy the cup wins for what they are, and I think you're right to say that we we take and try and take positives from them. Uh, you know, and I think that's a natural um, reaction to success is that you go, it would be great if we could build on this, but I I think not that we've had so many false dawns, but we've seen that the, the cup wins, as I said earlier, as brilliant as they are, they don't really give you an indicator of, of what the team is capable of in a 38 game league season. You know, so I don't think there are too many people saying we've won the cup, we're we're brilliant again, and now we're going to win every game. I think that's a I don't bit know, of exaggeration. Mate. I don't know. I think it, I think if you look at like the response to winning the cup in 2020, I think people really thought, and I was among them. This is the start of something. I'm not saying I'm better or smarter. No, I'm no, saying no. we all do it. No, and I, I, I and I remember in Arsene Wenger's final years, a lot of talk of like, well, we can't, you know. Obviously, you can't sack him. He's won the cup. How can you sack him? He's just won a trophy. I, I, I do think that we... And I, it's weird, you know, sitting here now, we're like, the cups don't mean anything. But then I remember other times where we'll be like, football's about cups. Yeah, sure. It's about the day about- outs and the cups. Yeah, I think there's a balance to be found, you know? I do. I do. But yeah, I, but I, I, do- I, I, don't think, I don't think that support football supporters strike that balance very yeah, well. Yeah, but do, do you think do you think if we win the EFL Cup, the Carabao Cup, that people are going to be they're going to enjoy it for what it is for the day out and you're probably going to face a reasonably good team in the final and if you win, you, you know, why wouldn't you celebrate? Of course you celebrate. You've won a trophy. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm not crying. Um you you've won a trophy. It, it it's right obviously to celebrate that in the moment, but I don't think Anyone would take away an EFL Cup win and say, "Well, this is this is a, an indicator that everything is going great for us, or that we are, you know, somehow better than we are." I don't think. I think it's less true of the EFL Cup, and I actually don't think it's because it's not as respected a trophy. I think it's because the finals in February, and so yeah, that's what happens between March and May ultimately becomes more defining i Mm. think inevitably if you end your season on the high of a cup win it can distort perception just as like Mm. when we had seasons previously where we finished in the top four on the final day 
you've got you have you have a summer of like you know considerable relief or yeah 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 elation but that you forget to an extent what came before so i i don't i don't know i don't think well i don't think the season can be really salvaged from this point um domestically i i think that with the premier league you know it, it's extremely difficult to ask for arsenal to get uh, an outcome that we can deem successful i think the only thing really that could actually save Arsenal's season is winning the Europa League. Probably. Mm. You know, because that would uh, get you qualification for the Champions League uh, and the financial windfall that comes to that. Don't get me wrong, I dread the prospect of Arsenal playing Champions League calibre teams week in, week out. I mean, I think we'd get absolutely torn to pieces. But that would, you know, Champions Mm. League qualification from this position would have to be deemed... A success, even if it would arguably come kind of too soon for this not very good team. Mm. And and our Europa League, Europa League record to date has been very good. I do think that's overplayed. Like, I do think... I heard Sky doing this the other day and sort of saying, you know, people talk about Arsenal having lost um, 100 Premier League games in succession, but they forget. They actually beat Dundalk twice in that. And, and with that absolute greatest <laughs> respect to, like, Dundalk and Vienna and... Who Mulder. else play? Mulder, Mulder, like we should not be placing any stock in that. Like, mm. I think less than beating those teams would be fairly disastrous. Bad. Yeah, yeah. Like, yes, we beat those teams. They are a long way off the caliber of an Everton or pretty much anyone mm. else we face in the Premier League. That, that's that's my assessment sure. of that. So, uh, so what would make it a successful season? I think winning the Europa League. I think that's it. What about you? Um, yeah, I mean, winning the Europa League would obviously be brilliant because it is a European trophy and we all know how long it's been since we won one of those. So that would obviously um, be deemed a success by any measure. I think if I'm thinking about the Premier League and what we might do or how we might end up, um, first and foremost, you know, get to that magic... 40 point mark um and a successful season or what might be also considered successful or certainly i might consider successful is integrating some more of the young players even if they don't turn out to be quite what we want them to be i think the more minutes we give them, the more valuable they become in the transfer market. So, mm. you know, let's let's start thinking strategically about how we use young players. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that and maybe doing something in January might be useful. Um, there were some questions about that in the press conference uh, as well, um, where... He says, we're basically, Edu's looking after all that now. So uh, it's all on you, Edu. Good luck to you. Um, no pressure. No pressure at all. I Yeah, I just think that bringing through some of the young players, getting rid of the the core or moving away from the core of players who are such a huge financial burden to us without contributing anything on the pitch or very little on the pitch I think is is really important as well 
Mm. I mean, some of that will happen naturally. Some will happen contracts. naturally, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, Louise out of contract, Ozil out of contract, Socrates out of contract, Mustafi out of contract, and there is a lot of money and wages saved immediately, immediately. Um, but there are others. There is Kalasnich, you know, <clears throat> there is... Shaka. Sure. Um, William. Yeah, there are several more. William. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, fucking best of luck with that. The money he's on, who's going to fucking take him? Why yeah. would he move? Cedric. I mean, you know, there are fringe players who are mm. who are unnecessary. Sabas's loan will be up, obviously. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there, there will be a natural. Uh, there's going to be a lot of churn, I think. Yeah. Do, um. Yeah. Let me take this into a question about January. Yeah. And and accepting, you know, that some of that churn is coming from uh, an area of the pitch in which we have more players than we need, uh, center half. Uh, there's still issues of of quality, I think. But, you know, we've so many central defenders. Louise, Socrates and Mustafi going, um, you know, isn't really a, a big issue in that sense because we've still got numbers. Quality, like I said, is a separate issue. But, but with so many players going, um, likely to go in the summer, mm. do, you, do you feel it's important in its own right for us to do something in the market in, in January. Now, there's obviously a really good other reason to do something in the market in January, and that's to, you know, in, improve the quality of the team and maybe add a bit of creativity to it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I have a question here from, oh, fuck's sake, uh, Pulse Fan, who's at Pulse underscore Fan. He says, if Arsenal are using a stats-based approach to recruitment, uh, why is uh, Emi Buendia of Norwich not being discussed as a, a January a January recruit? I think he is being discussed, in fairness. 23 years old, nearly 200 appearances, fourth for assists in the Premier League last year and top in the Championship this season. So, um would that be the kind of addition you could get on board with? And just sort of broadly, is January an important month to do something in the transfer market? Um, even if there are questions over the manager, um, should these be club signings, if you like? Yes, they should be club signings. I think that. Is that not the point of having a technical director? Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be. And I think, what do I think about the signings? I mean, Buendia is the name that should be on a, a list. Uh, I can't say if he is or not. I don't know. Um, but, you know, he fits the right kind of profile. I think clearly, Edu said publicly, hasn't he, they want to address the creative midfielder situation. Mm. Um I think they have to. My only concern about what's sort of going on a spending spree in January is like, I don't really see much point in just making this squad bigger. Like, I think the size of the squad is one of the problems at Arsenal. Mm. Um, I think it's unhealthy. And Arteta alluded to that today. You know, the idea that when you have a lot of players not playing, some of whom aren't even registered, it's not going to be a happy camp. There's always going to be people yeah. on the fringes, on the outside. Um providing that element of friction. 
So for me, kind of a prerequisite of bringing people in mm. is like, can you move some people on? I mean, they need to work so, so hard to get some of these people out. Yeah. Um, do you, what do, do you, you think? Have, do you have any sympathy for Arteta in that quite a number of the players in his squad are essentially dead men walking? Whether yeah. they're Whether they're at the end of their contracts or whether they still have contracts but aren't being picked or aren't being played you know who know new one yeah Yeah. who who know that the writing is on the wall you know and that basically in the summer Arsenal are going to do everything they can to shift them you know and that's the look that's the nature of football that's the way that it works but you know it's got to be it can't be that uh, conducive to a a top class competitive environment when there are players who just aren't playing and won't play hanging around. Like, I, I do think that. And I, there was a moment when I looked at the bench, I think it was during the Southampton game. And I think I saw Mustafi there and maybe one other. And I thought... Kolasinac. Yeah. And I sort of thought, is this these guys' problem? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, are they like, well, I'll be gone in a few months. I mean, how many times have we seen situations where... Players enter the last six months of their contract and they sort of get phased out. You know, they're just not yeah. selected anymore. And there's a few of those in this squad. Um, I do have a degree of sympathy with Arteta in that respect. And I know a lot of these weren't his signings. And in fairness to Edu, some of them weren't his signings. Um, but it is the situation that we're in and Arsenal need to trim that. I mean, I've said it before, but our most successful squads have been small. mm is is this where we now really need to see the efficacy of of Edu's work as technical director? Because yeah. this is this is um this is a much more than a like a squad management issue, if you like. It's more than you know a manager or a manager should have to deal with that. The makeup of the squad, the age, the experience, the contract situations, all of those things, there are too many negatives and not enough positives. Yes, but in f- listen, and I'm you, not, know, I'm, you know my feelings about Edu and I've got my concerns. Yeah, yeah. But this is the first window well, that is his. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. I mean, obviously, he's been at the club longer than... Mikel Arteta, and yeah. what was his title under Raúl? It's the same, I believe. The same. So he's had this job for eighteen months now, and he worked yeah. very closely with Raúl, and yeah. he worked very closely with, you know, that agent guy who he's very good friends with. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. all of the agents' players end up at Arsenal, right? So while I agree with you that this is his first window in which he has had sole responsibility, I don't think he can get away completely with some without some scrutiny over what's come before while he's Absolutely been in that no. job. No, no, no. And, and I don't think that either. But I do think that what Raoul's departure gives him is a kind of plausible deniability. Do you know what I mean? Like he yeah, is yeah. fortunate in that he is able to separate himself and say, "Well, that was the previous regime, and this is me." And um, I guess in the, 
as, as a supporter, I'm sort of prepared to give him that good faith and say, okay, then your turn. Mm. What are you going to do? And what we need to see from him, I think, in the January transfer window is a signing, hopefully, that is a club signing, like you say, not a coach-dependent signing because the future of the coach has to be in considerable doubt. Someone that is, you know, the right age profile, the right sort of price for a team in the position that we're in. Mm. Someone with aspirations to get better over the next two to three years, not someone entering the twilight of their career on too much money. Um, And if they can't do that in January... Maybe the brave thing is to not. Maybe the brave thing is to not. Like, maybe the brave thing is to say, well, it's the January window, it's difficult. Yeah. We're, gonna, we're not going to finish top four anyway. Let's wait. Yeah. And I make mean, the right decision for the club. Eric Sobey, who's at Sobey underscore AFC, says, I keep reading that we must buy new players in January, but since few players are usually available, won't this lead to more short, short-term decisions? In my opinion, there are reasons why January windows have led to Marie, Cedric, Suarez, El Neni, etc. Don't forget. Oh, yeah. Uh, did he mean Cedric Suarez or Dennis Suarez? They're both He, he said signings. Cedric and then Suarez. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Well... Yes, I am inclined to agree. And actually, um, what I would say, I can't believe I'm saying this, but what I would say in defence of, of, say, Denis Suarez was, it was, it was, albeit an expensive one, it was just a loan, there was no commitment. You know, and if Cedric and Pablo Marie had been purely loans for six months at a time when we needed bodies, I could have made my mm. peace with that. Yeah, yeah. Clearly... You know, that's not how it panned out. And I don't think anyone involved in those deals believed that that was how it was going to pan out. And that was the problem. Yeah. But, you know, if Arsenal do a loan that's six months and it doesn't cost a vast amount and there's no obligation, then, okay, you know, I can understand that. We'll we'll revisit it properly in the summer. What we can't do is make a four-year commitment to something that isn't the right deal. Yes. We've done it too many times. I agree. Completely agree. I think the balance... Yeah, they've got to find the balance between the need to improve the squad and to, you know, look, a signing in January can have an impact. You think about um, Arshavin uh, yeah. is certainly one, and Jose Antonio Reyes was another one way back in the day. Um, but yeah, th- th- we have to start making the right strategic decisions when it comes to recruitment. Um, it's a bit of a tired old cliche you know to say you can't buy you're not going to buy somebody just for the sake of buying somebody sometimes you kind of have to but Arsenal have done it badly and wrongly far too many times so we need to bring in the right players to bring in uh, as you say the right age profile of player Um, there are short term deals you could do but if they're only short term all well and good but we can't give a three, four-year contract to a guy who's 28, 29, you know, like we did with, with Cedric. It's just the wrong way to operate. So, you know, going back to the question of um, what would constitute a, a, a successful season, if we could do some business in January, which at least demonstrated we've learned some of the lessons from the the mistakes of the past, I think we could look at that as, if not a success, certainly a positive. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I. It's going to be really interesting. And in terms of getting players out, mm. 
I, I do have a bit of sympathy with the club. I don't think it's an easy time to be shifting players, albeit ones that you've put on too much money. Um, if Edu can find a way for someone to... I mean, if he can find a way to do what Southampton did with Cedric, for example, mm. and get someone to take over the last six months of Socrates' contract or Mustafi's contract, I genuinely think that would win him quite a good deal of credit with the Arsenal fans. You know, I, I think that there's... I think people recognise the squad is too big, too much money is going into resource that isn't being used mm. and that has to be addressed. And I think that should be part of his, a big part of his focus as well in the next month. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, we're going to have to pay these players. We're going to have to pay them anyway. Yeah, exactly. So if we subsidise a loan to somewhere else to you know make the squad a bit less bloated, assuming that these guys want to play somewhere and aren't just happy to sit around assuming they want to play it should I agree it's going to be difficult but it's not impossible that we could find someone to take them be yeah can we be smart can we be clever can we find solutions I really hope so Um, yeah it'll be interesting I've got no idea what sort of window to expect generally Mm. In, in football, you know, it's obviously a, a funny time financially, a difficult time. So I think there'll be, there might be a few loan deals around, which I know will ring alarm bells for some people, but mm. let's see. Um, on this subject, by the way, Willie Mack, who's at Mr. Chilly Willie, <laughs> whose name has cheered me up at least today, has said, is our lack of recruitment from other teams in the Premier League at the heart of the problem? We seem to roll the dice on expensive French league players. We could have saved ourselves money and added depth with guys like Hoiberg, Decoré, Wijnaldum, etc. It's a debate we've had before. Yeah. I mean, we have signed players from Premier League clubs. David Luiz, Willian. Very true. It depends on the the kind of player, right? Yeah, again, it comes back to strategy and it comes back to, you know, properly addressing the issues and, and making signings for the right reasons, you know? Mm. Um, I think too many of our signings of late have got big, big question marks over them for various reasons mm. um, that I don't know that we need to go into again. But yeah, I you know, look, there are players who've moved between Premier League clubs and at the time you think, well, wow, is that really, is he really the guy to take you to the next level? You know, I think of, you know, I know Liverpool did it a lot with Southampton, didn't they? They just kept buying players from Southampton until they got the good ones. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I remember thinking at the time when Liverpool spent a huge amount of money on Mane, I always thought he was a good player, but I didn't think he was going to develop into, you know, the the amazing player he has been at Liverpool and maybe it's you know the 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 right club for him and the right coach and all of those kind of things that that come together for him but I do wonder like what would Arsenal fans you know if you are buying players from from teams like um like Southampton down the years there, there was almost like a bit of snobbery wasn't there I think so and I hope we've learned as a support base our sort of lesson from that I mean, look at what look at what Liverpool did even this summer. They went and paid what looked like an absolute premium for Diego Jota, for a guy who wasn't yeah. even playing every week at Wolves. Already looks like a very shrewd investment. I, I mean, I do find myself asking the question of Arsenal's transfer dealings in the last five years. Would Liverpool have done it? 
And, you know, you go <sighs> through it and you think, mm, not too many of them. And, I, and, and I'm not trying to put them on a pedestal or anything like it, but I just think they recruit in a very, very smart way. And when you look at what we do, too often it, it isn't really smart. Mm. Uh, anyhow, yeah. let's have another question. Is it... Um, bu- 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 it could be your turn. Oh, I've got one here, if not. Well, I've got one here. Um, Christian Rodbro, who's at K Rodbro, uh, K underscore Rodbro on Twitter. He says, your thoughts on Luiz and his record as a leader in teams that suddenly collapse? Brazil, Chelsea and Arsenal. Any worries? I think there are always worries when you sign a player like David Luiz because he has got this unfortunate history of kind of, you know, being part of dressing room revolts. Um, I, 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 What I don't know is, and, and an interesting side to this is kind of like, was he right? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, did the t- did the manager have to go? And I don't know. Yeah. Um, I haven't done the, the research on that. It's not a great uh, show of professionalism, though, is it, regardless? So, uh, yeah, I do worry about that. And that's what I mean about, when I said in part one, about sometimes just the technical aspect of a mm. signing should only ever be one part of it. You know, someone also has to be thinking about um, and, and if you're a manager and not just a head coach, you also need to be thinking about what does this do to the dressing room? What does this do to the culture? You know, what does this say about the club? Um, and it's impossible at this point to look at sort of the import of Louise and Willian from Chelsea and, and feel like it was healthy or correct. Mm. And that's in spite of the, the good days Louise has had for us, as we said. What, yeah. what do you think? I don't know. I mean, look, I... I... I don't know that you can lay our problems on the door or the, of David Luiz in particular, but I do, like you, share some concerns about sort of dressing room influence. I think he's a good time guy. I think he's a good time guy. When things are going well, he's a great mm. guy to have around, mm. you know? But as soon as they're not going that well, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that's where he's strongest. I could be doing him a disservice here because actually against Everton, I thought at least he tried to get the ball looked, forward. Yeah. The, the the amount of times he, like in the first half, he was looking for a pass. Willian wasn't coming for the ball. Another part of what annoyed me about Willian's performance. But, you know, I saw a guy at least look to try and take some responsibility. He drove forward with the ball a few times. Mm. Uh, mostly because he had nobody to pass to. There was nobody showing for the ball. So it was just like, well, fuck it. I'll try and get forward with the ball and make something happen. And, you know, not a lot came of it. But um, in in that sense, you know, based on what he tried to do on the pitch, you know, I'm, I, I did see some stories about like the dressing room and factions and things like that. But I didn't see a guy who um, who wasn't playing for the manager. And I no. I did see that from him when the end was nigh for Emery. Right, yeah. I, I actually thought he did all right. I think he played pretty well at Everton. And I liked, you know, I think you mentioned sort of uh, people not being available for the pass. And there were moments in the first half where it felt like he was really kind of pushing the team forward. Um, 
yeah, I, and his passing was very good on the day. So I, I didn't have a huge issue with his performance. He mm. does seem to be on the right side of the fence right now. Mm. I guess the trouble with him is you never know how long he's going to stay there. I found um, my fun question. I hope it's fun. I think we need it. Arsenal Monkey on Discord said, how impressed were you with Ainsley Maitland-Niles' throw-ins? The way he put his arms behind his head before thrusting them forwards <laughs> surely is an encouraging sign of the hard work we are doing on the training ground. <laughs> uh, excellent. Yeah, very, very impressed, I have to say. The, the throwing was top class. Top class. It's what you want. Absolutely. It's top all class. you want from a right back. That's all you need. Just a good thrower. Although, <laughs> there was one really bad throw as well, wasn't there? Am I, From him? Yeah, am I misremembering Maybe. it? I think he threw it in field, like in a straight line. Oh, yeah. And I can't remember what happened after that. I was probably just closing my eyes. I know. With, I know. with you know, emotion. For and, the best. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So, uh, What about this question? Adam okay. Sykes, if you're Bukayo Saka... At what stage do you start getting a bit pissed off at being the utility man? In the last few weeks, he's played every position bar keeper, centre-half and striker. <laughs> also, do you think this might stunt his development? Um, if I'm, when do I get... Do I get pissed off if I'm a 19-year-old and I'm playing all the time? I don't think so. I don't personally. think so. I think, I think if I'm playing at 19 years of age, I'm happy. Um, and it doesn't really matter a huge amount to me where, you know, particularly as the majority of his football is coming in, you know, positions where he's relatively natural slash comfortable. You know, I know he moved over to the right uh, in one of the games and he finished, which game did he finish at right back? One of the games anyway, finished at right back. Um, I don't, I don't think it'll stunt his development either. I don't think it will stunt his development. So, can, can I? Where would you play him? Left side of the front three, right? Or yeah, I'd play him in a midfield three on the left side of a midfield three. Mm. And I think yeah. that might be where he ends up. I think that is probably where he'll end up. I, I do just feel like I, you know Arsenal have been sort of experimenting with a kind of. You know whether you call it a second striker or a number mm. ten, someone in that central area. I am inclined to say I'd like to see us try Saka there. I know he's very good in wide areas, but there's nothing to prohibit him moving about. You know, when Mesut Özil played that position, he would frequently pick up positions in wide areas. I just think he is, you know, the most naturally uh, creative player we seem to have. He's someone who can take it with his back to goal and who can also turn and face and dribble at people. Yeah. Uh, I'd give that a go. Why not? We've played him everywhere else. Uh, anyway, your question. My question. Um, there's just so many questions. Loads of questions about whether um, Willian has private pictures of Mikel Arteta. <laughs> I can't say for sure. But probably yes. I think we can say with some confidence. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to guess. If I were to guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but it seems like they do. 
Okay, here's one from the Discord from Cluck the Rotisserie Chicken. He says, you wake up tomorrow morning and you find yourself in the body of Tim Lewis, the uh, the Cronky Whisperer. It's a Christmas miracle. You now have the ear of the Cronkies and you're asked to give them three advice, three pieces of advice on how to deal with the disaster that is Arsenal FC. One short term, one medium term and one long term piece of advice. What would those be? Wow, that is that's a difficult question to Tis. answer. That's why Three I asked it advice, short of you before you asked it of me. And long term, <laughs> yeah. Whew, that is tricky. I think short term. Um, so I, I, I mean, one of the things that sort of come up in the questions I've been asked about elsewhere is the kind of. Uh, the drain of football expertise that Mm. has come out of the club and the degree to which Arsenal could or should replace that. So the list of names of people who've left the club in the last few years since 2018 is quite extraordinary. Um, I saw a tweet doing the rounds, actually. Yeah, it's so it's like, you know, off the top of my head, start with Arsene Wenger, uh, 2018, you've also got uh, Gazidis and Dick Law people dispute their football credentials then you go Sven Mislintat then you go uh, Darren Burgess mm. then you go Unai Emery then you go uh, Francis Kagagal uh, Raul Sanyei no 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 Raul I'm not having not having it well whatever you may think of any of these people no I know I know I know I know. it's a lot out and uh, I mean? the stat DNA guy Jason Rosenfeld, sorry, yeah. Apologies to any of the <laughs> listing Arsenal <laughs> staff that I have lifted, uh, left, messed off that list. It is just unwieldy. And, um, uh, yeah, Marcel Lucassen most recently. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of people with redundancies recently. So mm. it's a gulf. And so I understand completely and see the logic of people who are like, that needs to be in some way addressed. The only counterpoint to that, and it's something that I've been thinking about over the weekend, is when you have a situation like we did with Raul and Edu, you know, we're looking at the transfer business for the last two years and going, well, who do we blame for that? Who's accountable Mm. for that? And so to an extent, although I think, although I have my concerns about the inexperience, I do think at least there is very, very clear accountability within Arsenal for the first time in a very long time. And maybe that's not a bad thing if it allows you to make clear judgments on the people you have in those positions. What do you think to that? I still think there's a too much of a gulf Yes, I I do too. But it makes me think maybe that the gulf should be addressed at kind of the board level rather than putting in another like technical director too. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Oversight level, you know, like, you know, what I would say is if I'm Tim Lewis, I'm going, this is great. I've got the Cronkies here. I'm making a lot of decisions about the club. I'm a fan. Lovely. I'm also a lawyer. Yes. And I'm not a football man, uh, or, you know, someone who worked extensively in the game. What would be good for me is if I had people at my level around me mm. who understood sport and the way a club runs intimately, you know? 
Yeah, I th- I think that's I think that's right. Um, the 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 footballing eggs are all in the basket of Arteta and Edu right now. So yeah. they they've got to be good. And the, the the issue for me is like where is the expertise above that that sets, makes the decision on makes them. the decisions and <clears throat> also sets the standards. And you know if it continues to go wrong and we have to make a change, who's making that decision? This is my gigantic fear at this moment in time. Like, what do we do as a football mm. club? Is Josh yeah. Kroenke going to pick the next manager or the next technical director or both? Is it going to be Vinay? Do we hire a consultancy firm? Do we do some kind of formal recruitment process or put in place some kind head of formal? Head, yeah, what, how do we as a football club make those decisions? I know there are still yeah. people there like Per Mertesacker at academy level and, you know, um, I, I, it just feels like a really important part of the the structure is missing. So I think uh, I agree. And I think it's, do you know what, in fairness to the Arsenal Supporters Trust, it's something they have absolutely banged on and on about is the, the structure of the board mm. and the expertise at board level. And I do think, you know, the board this summer gone lost the chips obviously who left as chairman but also ken fryer stepped down officially mm. from the board so the board now what have you got you've got stan and josh you've got lord harris and you've got tim lewis but are is you that- know yeah i mean lord is harris it? is that not a ceremonial position i mean in terms of the day-to-day running of the club at board level or whatever it is at executive level you know who's on the zoom calls you know, there, sure. who's on the Zooms? Is it Josh? Is it Tim Lewis? Is it um, Ed? So I think it's Tim, as far as I understand it, as kind of for the ball. I think I think Phil Harris does has been more involved than I realised over the last twelve months, right? Um, but nevertheless, and, and you know, he looks at things more from a business perspective. His background is business; it's not sport. Mm. So I do think you know something Bayern Munich have always done very well is have incredibly experienced people within the club at that very, very, very high level. I, I, I'm, I'm come round to the point of view that that might be what Arsenal require. So if you ask me, what do I do if I'm the Cronkies short, mid and long term, and this might sort of surprise or disappoint some people, but I say short term, you, you commit and support Arteta and Edu, they are the people that you've hired and that you've given this responsibility to and therefore you support them. Mid-term, you add uh, greater football oversight at board level, people who are incredibly experienced to Mm. understand uh, football club culture, football club structure, and you put them in there to kind of, you know, be that sort of, um, that point of contact and that Mm. oversight. And then long-term, you empower that board to make the decision on whether or not Arteta and Edu are executing their jobs effectively. And I think you empower them to do that and you make that decision over the next, I don't know, six to 12 months. Maybe that's not long enough term, but that is, that is, I think, how I would approach this problem. What happens if we keep losing games? <laughs> yeah. Well, great question. I look, I, and I don't expect an answer. It's a really, um, 
you know, it's, yeah, I don't expect an answer to that. Well, because- yeah, I mean, what, do you have an answer to it? You have to make a change if you keep losing games. That's the reality. I'm sorry. Yeah. I... I I get what you're saying, and I think they have committed, and we have to see what they do in January. And if, you know, you can start to see things that are being put in place that give you um, hope and encouragement about the way things are going to be run in the future, I, I do get it. But if you can't win football matches, there's, there's, there's no other way around it. Well, but, can I say something? I think yeah. Edu has to be able to sack the coach. For this structure to work, for there to be a point in having a technical director, he has to have that power. And mm. if you don't trust him to have that power, he's not the right person to be in the job. Do you not think? Yeah. Because if he's the guy who lays out the recruitment, the plan, three to five years, you know, he's always got one eye on the future, then he is the guy... A, with the football knowledge, and B, who's across those plans and provides the continuity, who should be making the decision on the coach. Mm. And and if if Edu hasn't got that authority right now, then he, then he shouldn't be in that job. Somebody else should be. With that experience and who the Cronkies trust sufficiently to do that. Mm. And I don't know. I don't think anyone really can tell you. If you ask the question, can Edu sack Arteta? I don't think anyone knows. It, it wouldn't be Edu's decision, though, would it? I mean, he could make it, a recommendation, make a recommendation sure. I guess. And then it's got to be up to Stan and Josh. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah I think, I think yeah, that, that little bit more clarity at executive level would be really good for us. But, really I, good. but, but I also think that... Um, I also think that... I, I do see the calls to sort of bring in, you know... Ralph Ranick is, is one of the names doing the rounds mm. or someone like that. But I think it's very difficult to have that person and Edu. I think that I think you were almost in an either or because I just don't know how we judge them and how we assess their performance otherwise. I mean, it's not for us to assess. It's for, you know, yeah. somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I think, I think we're kind of not going around the houses a bit, but I don't know what more we can talk about on a broad level at Arsenal. Um, yeah, without driving ourselves and the listeners absolutely mental. Um, so, look, I think we'll leave it there for today, but I think we should take the opportunity to to thank everybody for being here with us week after week, mm-hmm. defeat after defeat, disappointing result after disappointing result, Willian after Willian. Um, thank you for being here with us and, and for enduring it. I know not everybody celebrates Christmas, but those of you that do, um, please have a very happy and safe and healthy uh, time with your family if you can I know there are many people out there now listening to this and you know we're we're one of those families um, this season that uh, isn't going to be together uh, my daughter can't come home from Barcelona because of the pandemic so it's really difficult for everybody out there but as much as you can try and uh, celebrate it and have a good time and um, you know yeah, I don't know what else to say. Just thank you for being here, and uh, I hope you have a nice time in this really strange period in all of our lives. 2020 has been a fucking hell of a year, and it's nearly over, and hopefully next year will be better. But um, I just want to say thank you uh, to everybody for 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 helping us do what we do, because, um, yeah, 
all the feedback and everything else is just it's great and we love it and um we love having you here so thanks yeah it's what i mean ultimately it's what keeps you doing it and it's what makes it worthwhile is people listening and people mm. enjoying it and interacting and thank you for sticking with it <laughs> if you have managed to over the course of this year because there's been some real highs and some real lows too on the football front and in the strangest of times we're all desperately looking to football to provide some you know relief and some uh joy and right now it isn't so it, it isn't <laughs> I, w- I wish it was for all our sake, but uh, not at the moment. But better times will will surely follow at some point. And the nice thing is, we're all in it together. <laughs> some of us are just getting paid two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week to coast around the pitch, though. Together. Sure, sure. But yeah, you know, I'd rather be in that boat. Yeah. <laughs> Um, are your uh, are your plans for Christmas absolutely ruined by the yeah, lockdown? Yeah, pretty much. And and, and you know, I, while I understand the logic, uh, it, the disappointment of the kind of shifting, the moving goalposts mm. to use a football analogy is substantial. But uh, you know, I, I, I think I don't know what to say about it. It's crap. But yeah. listen, one of the interesting things about this year has been because there've been no fans in grounds it has kind of u- my uh, football experience has been almost exclusively online mm. be it you know via these podcasts or youtube or twitter or whatever it might be and so i think in a funny sort of way that strength that sort of sense of community in the digital world has been kind of strengthened mm. um, and it's felt very 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 Global, you know, there's not been that distinction between the fans at games and the fans not at games. It's, yeah. it's been a very shared communal thing, and that has actually been uh, quite nice at times. So every cloud, I guess. But yeah, wishing everyone a very good Christmas. I'm sure you'll find ways to chill out and enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, here's to 2021 and that bringing better things for everybody for everybody exactly um we'll be here next monday with an mm-hmm. cast extra so um that's the chelsea game i'm not quite sure what the rest of this week holds in terms of podcasts and stuff like that um friday of course is uh, christmas day and that's regular cast day we'll see what happens we'll see what happens maybe i can throw something together this week but if not please do forgive me we'll be here on monday again with another Ar- uh, cast extra so until then take it easy ho 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 bye bye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.